0: Well, this past week, our family took a later than normal vacation to Cape Coral, Florida. Uh, typically, we go in August before the school year starts, but we wanted to save a little bit, a little bit of money, and and we were we were in need of some more uh, points on our cards to get free flights. So we. We delayed the trip, and, and we went in October instead. And We were well south of the hurricane. We got some texts from some, some people that were concerned that we were in the eye of the storm. We avoided that, and we are praying for those who were affected. And, and as a church, we'll pray this morning for those who were affected by Hurricane Michael. Uh, it was really nice to be in 80 to 90 degree weather every single day. Uh, we made some wonderful family memories together. There was lots of swimming we tried fishing in the canals, we caught nothing, uh, and that's typical for, for my boys because I am their fishing guide and, and I often catch nothing. Uh, but it's so good to be home and to be with our church family this morning. I got to worship in a Baptist church down in Florida, uh, kind of the, the, the land of the Baptist, and, uh, and it, was, it was sweet worship and it was a joy to be with them, but it's a greater joy for me to be with all of you this morning to worship God. I wanna remind you of what we've covered so far in this sermon series on the church that we've titled Glory and Grace. Well, we began with what it means to be a gospel community, what it means to be a church, a healthy church. We looked at how we are united to God and to one another, that is through Christ. We looked at why we're united together for his glory as we just read in the catechism question. And we looked at how we're to function in a, in a right manner together from Galatians 6. As we, as we pursue Christ and we pursue godliness together, what is it going to look like as we struggle with sin and we struggle with one another's sin? And then we moved on to corporate worship for two Sundays. And so we looked at the importance and significance of corporate worship in the life of a local church. Well, this morning's sermon will serve as an introduction to our next two areas of focus, which will be baptism and the Lord's Supper. Our scripture passage from God's holy word is Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. I encourage you to pull out the Pew Bible, and again, as I so often do, although I think I can find it real quick, I forgot to, to find the page number, but, but I think you can do it. So please turn now. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be reading 6 through 13. And as you do that, I want to remind you that the purpose of this sermon series on the church, we typically walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, but, but every once in a while, uh, when, we, when we elders believe there's a need for a specific teaching on a, a certain topic, we'll, we'll do these topical sermon series. The, the purpose for this series is twofold. First, to provide vision for how we will accomplish the church's mission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all. And second, with this series, we want, we want to provide additional teaching on ecclesiology, that is, the, the doctrine of the church and, and important matters that relate to the church, and that would certainly include the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so now, hopefully, you've turned to Hebrews 8. I, I will read from God's Holy Word, verses 6 through 13. You know, I was going back and forth on whether or not to do this. You stood last Sunday uh, because of the text in Nehemiah, and that's something that I've, I, I've always wanted us to do more, and so we're going to try it in this series. And, and I'm going to ask you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. If you're able, if you're not able, please, uh, please stay seated. not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with those with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated, and we will pray for God's help in these matters. Oh, we praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, for you are Lord over all. What an absolute privilege it is to be your people, to know you as Hebrews 8 refers to. This glorious reality that though we were wicked rebellious sinners so far from you you sent your son the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us to make us your own children to adopt us to justify us not by our works not because we were pretty or handsome enough not because we we sparkled in your eyes but because You chose to save sinners for your own glory, to use us as vessels of mercy. And now we have the honor, the joy of worshiping you together. Wow. God, I pray for the Christian that is apathetic towards this glorious gospel news, these promises, this blessing of being your people, saved by your grace and for your glory. Wake up the hearts that have grown cold to the glories of the gospel. Show us this morning the face of your son, Jesus Christ, which reveals your glorious grace to sinners. Father, thank you for all of your blessings. We rejoice together this morning for salvation is only in all of you, the Lord, our God and King. Father, as we do when we gather together, we confess that we have sinned in word, thought, and deed over the past week. We have done things, thought things, and... and and said things that do not honor the name that we bear, the name of Jesus Christ, and please forgive us for our sins. We confess them before you. We recognize that that we are still this side of heaven, imperfect, waiting for glory, being sanctified, and one day we will be glorified, but we rest in this truth of the gospel. We have been justified. You have declared us righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what your Son has done. And so again, we confess our sins, and we confess that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he made atonement for our sins on the cross. It was your plan, and we rejoice in it this morning. Even as we grieve over our continued sins, we rest in the promise of the gospel that they have been paid for completely by the work of your Son. Father, we give you thanks for all of your blessings, salvation first and foremost, but all the other wonderful joys that you give to us, your people, because we see them rightly as gifts from your hand to encourage us, to strengthen us, to remind us of your love and your kindness towards your people from children, to grandparents, to the church, which, which is a spiritual family, to the, the house or the apartment, the car, the job. You are a generous God. Help us to see every good gift that we have as a gift from you, our Father, to encourage our hearts to continue on, even as we, we go through hardship and suffering. And Father, we do pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are experiencing great suffering for, for the persecuted church that that is being thrown in people that are being thrown in prison and and unable to to openly and 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 clearly rejoice in the gospel, have to worship in secret because because they believe the gospel. We pray for these brothers and sisters throughout the world, whether it's in North Korea or in Somalia or. It, or in other places where, where it's, it's illegal to trust in Christ and to share the gospel. Strengthen their faith. Continue to make them bold in worshiping you and, and sharing the gospel with family, friends, and, and other non-believers. Father, we pray for, for the Americans and, and all those who were affected by Hurricane Michael in Florida. We, we ask, Father, that the church would rally around those who are, who are especially hopeless right now. Outside of Christ, we are all hopeless, but, but those who, are, who have experienced great loss, whether it's the loss of, of a family member, a friend, or property, uh, they, they're especially hopeless right now. And, and in times of hopelessness, the light shines even brighter, the light of the gospel. And so we pray that, that the gospel would go forth in, in the panhandle of Florida and the other areas that were affected by the hurricane. And now, Lord, as we consider your word and we, we look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would give us understanding. We, we want to honor you. We want to think rightly about these things, and, and we need your help. And so we pray for your help in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, in choosing Hebrews 8 6 through 13 as the text to introduce baptism and the Lord's Supper, some of you may be thinking that I, I might have got a little bit too much sun while on vacation. After all, I've chosen a passage that doesn't mention baptism or the Lord's Supper once. Instead, the word that's repeated throughout the passage, if you picked up on this as I read it to you, is the word covenant. Covenant is repeated throughout the passage. Now, I admit that I did get a little bit too much sun on my shoulders and on my back. Uh, which tends to happen uh, when, I, when I go somewhere warm. But I assure you that Hebrews 8, 6 through 13 is, is a very good scripture to serve as an introduction to a series of sermons on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's what we'll be getting into. So this is an introductory sermon. Um, it's, it's, it's heavy on background and in, in, in terms that are going to be used later on in, in future sermons. And we'll be looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper for, for quite a few weeks together in, in the coming weeks. So I don't want you to worry this morning. This is is a good passage to be in, and I'll be referencing other passages that do directly speak about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, before we look at Hebrews 8 and other passages, I want to explain why I believe that there's a real need for these sermons on baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's been my personal as well as my pastoral experience that when it comes to the ordinances, sacraments as some of us know them as, uh, to baptism and the Lord's Supper, many of us evangelical, Bible believing, and if you will go so far, and remember this is a Baptist church, Baptist Christians can be a bit confused about their significance, even uneasy if someone seems to make a big deal about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Many of us don't really understand how baptism and the Lord's Supper fit within discipleship and within the life of the church. We know that we're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. We've got that clear. We've, we've gotten the solace of the Reformation clear and we embrace them. We talk about them all the time. We, we use them as, as key discussion pieces when we're sharing the gospel. Uh, while we were packing up the car Uh, To to leave the the house, and it's always a difficult moment when you're, you know, putting the stuff back in the car and and driving to the airport, or typically we're driving home and we're preparing for this long drive with multiple children that will get antsy every couple hours. You know, that's a difficult moment. While we were doing that, uh, a car pulled up and we thought they were the people that would be cleaning the house. Well, it turned out to be a, a son and a father who were Jehovah's Witnesses and they came right to, right to the cars, and they started the conversation, and it seemed like they were a little bit newer at, at um, sharing the message of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and so I just kind of patiently listened, and I went to the solas of the Reformation. He said, well, what do you do with suffering? What do you what do, you do with, with that? And I said, well, I believe suffering has a purpose. Salvation, Jesus suffered and then I went to the solas and I was using them as bullet points. So, so we, we evangelical Bible-believing Baptist, if if you will use that label for yourself, we, we get that salvation is, is, is not a work. And so whatever their significance, we believe that, that the ordinances are not salvific. That is water baptism and the Lord's Supper do not save anyone from the consequence of their sins. We believe that every true Christian is saved by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're forgiven of their sins. They are justified, reconciled to God and to his people, adopted into God's family and given eternal life and assured of all the promises of the gospel solely and only because Jesus lived and he died and he was raised from the dead by the Father and the power of the Spirit. Because the the ordinances do not save us, Some of us have come to view baptism in the Lord's Supper as as not very important, as, as optional. Now, some of you know that I strongly dislike the taste of ketchup. I think I've mentioned this in previous sermons. And that I very much like the taste of barbecue sauce. Whatever, whatever type of barbecue sauce we're talking about, it could be molasses-based, it could be vinegar-based, it could be spicy barbecue sauce or sweet, or one of my favorite sweet and spicy barbecue sauce. I love me some barbecue sauce. I put it on chicken, on pork, on beef. I dip my fries in it, and I even dip my fried fish in barbecue sauce. Now, I know I know that, that most of you are thinking, well, the ingredients in ketchup are are in barbecue sauce. Almost all of the ingredients are in most barbecue sauces. And, and I know that, but here's the thing. I think of ketchup as unfinished barbecue sauce. It's like, it's, it's halfway there, but it's missing some important ingredients. It needs to be cooked a little bit longer and, and it need, needs the good stuff. It's missing that. And I, I just don't have a taste for ketchup. People have, have kind of belittled me in some sense, teased me about, I'll take the, the teasing, that's fine. Barbecue sauce is better. Why eat ketchup when you can have barbecue sauce? I share this with you because sadly, I think that some of us have a view of the ordinances that makes them similar to condiments. We think that we can choose them or not choose them in the Christian life, and, and, and all depending on whether or not we have a taste for them. Church, this approach to baptism and the Lord's Supper is not right. Not, not only because it, it, it's just ridiculous, but because just because something doesn't save us doesn't mean that it's unimportant. A view like this of the ordinances is too low. It's too individual. It's too self-focused. And most importantly, it's just unbiblical. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are are about so much more than our own spiritual experiences. Certainly, God uses baptism and the Lord's Supper to strengthen and refresh our individual faith in Christ. But if we think of baptism and the Lord's Supper as something like spiritual condiments that we can put on our Christian life to to liven us up a little bit, to spiritually add some flavor, well, well, we're missing their significance in discipleship and God's purpose for them in the life of his church. Now, we would never say, at least I don't think any of us would say, that we view baptism and Lord's Supper like condiments, but, but functionally, this is how some of us see them, as optional, as, as if, if we like them, if we need something, you know, go, go to that, baptism and Lord's Supper. But God's Word teaches us that though they do not save us, they are extremely important. When we read the Bible, there's just no getting around it. Consider Jesus' closing words in the Gospel of Matthew, which we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of of the age." Here, church, we see that part of the discipleship process includes baptizing those who profess faith in Christ in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is so important that Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize those who become disciples through the preaching of his gospel. So they were to go out, village to village, spreading out from Jews to Gentiles, Samaritans. Everybody was to hear the gospel, and those who responded to the gospel by repenting of their sins and believing in Christ alone were to be baptized. Now, I can't help but point out the order in this passage. I'm a Baptist. Christ calls us to make disciples first, then baptize them. He does not command us to baptize them and then make them disciples. The order matters. It's become a disciple, then be baptized. And remembering that baptizing is part of the Great Commission means that baptizing people is very important in the Great Commission. And so we need to get this right. Jesus included baptism in the Great Commission. And sometimes we kind of just skip over that. In baptism, God has given us a picture, a sign of our union with Christ. As the 1689 Baptist Confession puts it, baptism is to the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Baptism is no little thing. It's a divinely ordained visual aid to show us what God has done in the gospel for sinners. We church, we Christians, have been united to Christ. And that's what we see in the baptismal waters. The person steps into the water. They... they they profess to be believers, to be trusting in Christ alone. And then we, we say the words that, that Christ commanded us to say in baptism. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they go under the water. This picture of their, them having died in Christ. And then we raise them from the water. We always raise them from the water. And as, as they're raised, we're given this picture of that, that Christian being resurrected in Christ. Even now, they have new life in Christ. Baptism is a big deal. Then turning our attention to the Lord's Supper, one passage that speaks of its importance that we'll look at again in in future weeks in the life of Christ's church, the the importance of the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul writes in verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul received from the Lord and delivered to the church instructions regarding the Lord's Supper. It's that important that Paul would give them these instructions about the Lord's Supper, the church in Corinth. And these instructions not only contain Jesus' words at the Last Supper, which are recorded for us in the Gospels, they also include teaching about what happens through the Lord's Supper. Wonderful, wonderful teaching. Look at verse 26. It tells us that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Part of our mission as a local church is to proclaim the Lord's death, to proclaim the gospel. The Lord's death is part of the gospel. We do this proclaiming in many ways, all with words. We proclaim the gospel on Sunday morning as we we sing the gospel, as we pray the gospel, as we read God's word and as God's word is preached. We are gospel-centered in our corporate worship. We proclaim it to one another throughout the week because we believe that the gospel is not just for the non-Christian. The gospel is also for the Christian. We need to be reminded that we are justified by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, over and over and over again because we default into works. We, we think, hey, look at me. I've arrived as a Christian. So we need the gospel. For, so we need to be encouraged by the gospel as Christians. Not only that, we we proclaim the gospel to family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers as we live the life that God has called us to live in whatever field he's called us to live. We're to, to, to open our mouths, to step out of the comfort zone that, that is a, a quiet mouth that never talks about Jesus and tell people that Jesus came and he lived and he died so that sinners could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so we're proclaiming the gospel in so many different ways. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that another way that we are to proclaim and we'll do this together later on this morning, another way that we're to proclaim the Lord's death is through the Lord's Supper. As we take the bread and we drink the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. So one of the important purposes for the Lord's Supper is that God has given it to us as a means to help us proclaim the gospel to one another and to whoever happens to join us on a Sunday morning when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's beautiful. God has given this Lord's Supper, a important purpose in the life of the church. It's to proclaim. In the Lord's Supper, God has given us this visible reminder, like in baptism, a visible reminder that atonement has been made for our sins, that there is real hope in this life and in the next life, and that hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we must not view the Lord's Supper as merely optional, because among other things, the Lord's Supper is a God-given means to help us proclaim the cross. And that's why we exist, to proclaim the gospel, to make much of Christ, to exalt Christ among one another and in the world. We're to celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly. Now, it's been our practice for a long time to do it once a month. Throughout the series, I'm going to encourage us to consider doing this more than once a month together, because... There's something important that we're missing if we're not celebrating the the Lord's Supper regularly. So we'll be looking at at scripture and and considering how often should we be celebrating the Lord's Supper as a church together. The Lord's Supper is a gift to us to help us to see and be reminded of the Lord's death, his sufficient, soul-saving, life-giving, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice, to help us proclaim it to the world and to one another over and over again. And that's what we're doing when we partake in the bread and the cup church. So it's no little thing, you see. It's about Jesus dying for sinners and bringing them to God. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are a big deal. And so if the scriptures teach us to have a high view of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and God's word doesn't make baptism and the Lord's Supper optional. We're commanded to baptize. We're commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper These are not optional in discipleship and in the life of the church. Then then why the confusion? Why does that low view that exists among so many evangelical Bible-believing Christians exist? Well, there are many reasons. Bad teaching, which de-emphasizes their importance or a lack of teaching altogether, to name two reasons. However, I believe one of the greatest causes for the low view of the ordinances among many Christians in evangelical churches, like ours, is our own personal experience or background. Many of us have a background in or connection to Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism that has led us to be at best cautious about making baptism or the Lord's Supper too important, and at worst, to think that the ordinances are not very important at all. So it's, it's, if there's a pendulum on the Lord's Supper and Baptism, it's as if we came from, from a place where, where they were so important and we've swung to the opposite side where they're no longer very important. And I don't want us to just kind of swing back a little bit. I want us to have a right, a biblical, a balanced view of the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're aiming to do in these sermons. Personally speaking, my mom was raised in a large, one of those typical large. She had, she had nine brothers and sisters, Catholic families. So I often went to Mass with my extended family, and I was baptized as an infant and confirmed in the Lutheran Church. When God saved me at 20, I understood the errors of Rome. I had been taught that in the Lutheran Church. So I, so I didn't steer towards Rome, and I, and I wanted nothing to do with anything that resembled Lutheranism. Now, like many of you, I've come to appreciate how God used my, my background, especially Lutheranism, to give me a good foundation, good theology. They got the gospel right. I, I know that. I see that. They got the gospel right. And as I've told my Lutheran family and friends, and I have many Lutheran family members, I've read more Martin Luther more of his work since leaving the Lutheran church than I ever did in the Lutheran church. And I've come to appreciate when we went through the Reformation series to celebrate and to recognize the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I think some of people were like, is he Lutheran? Like he just loves him some Martin Luther because we talk so much about Martin Luther. No, I'm a Baptist. Don't worry. We're not, we're not leaving ba- uh, uh, credo baptism. We must profess faith in Christ first and then be baptized. But, but this is where we, we come from. This is our Protestant history. And so I've come to appreciate and praise God for my Lutheran brothers and sisters in Christ and, and for how God has used Martin Luther and the Lutheran church in, in saving, rescuing the gospel from, from its being set aside by Rome. However, as I did then and as I still do today, I believe their teachings regarding infant baptism and the Lord's Supper were an error, which is why I'm a Baptist and not a Lutheran. But somehow, my disagreement with the Lutheran Church's teachings on the ordinances well, it led me to, in essence, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like I, 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 I knew I did, disagreed with them on, on these two things, and so I just didn't know really what to do with them. Now, it wasn't the Lutheran Church's fault, it was my fault. It, I just didn't know how to think about baptism and the Lord's Supper. I, I didn't see how they fit into the life of the church and discipleship. I had to work out of my low view of the ordinances. And so maybe you don't have a low view of the ordinances, and this, will, this series of sermons will more encourage you and remind you, uh, but, but I suspect many of us do, and I, I want to bring us out of that low view. Though the details will differ, so many who come to our church and who become members in this church have a similar story, a similar background, and it's significantly shaped our view of baptism and the Lord's Supper, causing many of us to focus more on what we don't believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper than what we do believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper. For example, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that God will save a baby simply because they are baptized, and we don't believe baptizing babies removes their original sin. We don't believe infants should be baptized, but that believers who profess with their own mouth that Jesus is Lord are the ones who should be baptized. We don't believe in transubstantiation, that the bread and the cup miraculously and mysteriously physically turn into Jesus' body and blood. His body is in heaven. It's been resurrected. He has a real human body right now in heaven. The Catholics believe that and we don't believe that. We also don't believe that Jesus' body is truly and substantially present in, with, and under the consecrated bread and wine as the Lutherans believe. This mindset of, of what we don't believe has kept many of us from seeing and enjoying the blessing that God intends baptism and the Lord's Supper to be for his church. So how can we gain a better understanding of the importance of baptism and the Lord's Supper in discipleship and in the life of the church? Of course, we must open God's word We must humbly study God's word, and we must submit to what God's word teaches us. We must not let our experiences, our feelings, or our traditions determine our theology, or even our aversion to tradition. Remember, tradition is not an enemy. It just must serve and submit to the scriptures a good thing to have a history, a background. And that's one of the reasons why I quote often from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. We didn't come from nowhere. It's not like we just gathered together and said, hey, we're going to be Baptists. We have a history, a Reformation history. In the coming weeks, we'll look closer at key passages that provide teaching on the ordinances. But in this introductory sermon, I want to start by laying some groundwork and considering baptism and the Lord's Supper within the, the big storyline of the Bible, we need to have the right framework in place to see these ordinances rightly. We need to see how baptism and the Lord's Supper relate to the gospel. We need to see how, how they fit with God's plan to redeem a people through his Son for his own glory. And to do this, well, we, we need to see baptism and the Lord's Supper through the lens of one of the major categories or themes of the Bible. And that category, that theme is covenant, which brings us back to Hebrews 8, 6-13, where the word covenant is used seven times. Look again at the passage at verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Here we are told that Christ's ministry is much more excellent than the old. This Old is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant, which, which encompasses and is connected to all the other covenants in the Old Testament. And it's also a connection to the Old Testament priestly ministry. Remember, the priest would serve as a mediator between God and his people. The high priest would make atonement at, on Yom Kippur. One day of the year, he would go into the holy of holy places and he would sprinkle blood onto the tabernacle, on, onto the Ark of the Covenant. And, and this whole system right here in Hebrews 8, we're we're told is is not as good as this new covenant that Christ has brought. And the reason that the new covenant that Jesus mediates is better is that it was enacted, that is put into law by God on the basis of better promises. These better promises are given to us in verses 8 through 12, which, which are actually a quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So there's really three verses, and then a large chunk of this passage is simply a, a quoting from the Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 31, 31-34. And these promises, look at them with me, include that God will write his laws into our minds and onto our hearts. So, so from the, the, the written word, God will now take his laws and write them on our minds and in our hearts. If you love God. If you believe he is holy and righteous and good, if he is beautiful, if you understand that his law is not an enemy, it reveals our sin, it shows us how to live, and it points us to Christ, and it, it serves as a, as a protector, well, then you want God's law in your mind, and you want God to write it on your heart. This is a wonderful promise. It also includes that, that God will, will be our God, and we will be his people. It also includes this, this truth that all who are in the new covenant will know the Lord, as opposed to the old covenant in which there were Israelites by birth who didn't truly know or trust in the Lord. So you could be born an Israelite and not actually know the living God. You had to be taught the, the covenant and then hopefully— If the Spirit worked mightily to bring them to to knowledge of the God who made them and who entered into covenant, they would trust. So there were people within the covenant who actually were not truly God's people. But in this new covenant, that's not going to be the case. Everyone who is in the new covenant will know the Lord. Then God also promises that he will be merciful toward our iniquities and that he will remember our sins no more. What better promise is that? If you know the holiness of God and you know your own sinfulness and here in this new covenant, God says, I will remember your sins no more, no more. Wow, what a covenant. I wanna point out a few things within this text. First, we Christians are in the new covenant, in this covenant. The gospel and the new covenant are synonymous in that what the gospel of Jesus Christ accomplishes and what the new covenant promises are one and the same. Second, by quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the author of Hebrews is telling us that the new covenant is the long-promised covenant that God promised his people in the Old Testament, in passages, not only like in Jeremiah 31, but in Ezekiel 36, that he would take out our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. And that this long-promised new and better covenant has now come, how? Through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. So this new covenant then is different, it's new, but it comes to us out of the old. So there is continuity and there is discontinuity between the old and the new covenant. Third, in verse 7, we are told that this new covenant was needed because the first covenant was not faultless. Now some might read that and say, well, so God entered into a covenant that had a fault with it? Well, the reason that it was not faultless is not because there was a problem on God's side of the covenant. It's not that God is like a human writer who needs to make edits and improvements on things that he does. No, no, no. everything he does is perfect. The fault was on Israel's side. They are the one who broke. They are the ones who broke the covenant and received the covenant curses for breaking the covenant. Well, lastly, in verse thirteen, I, I want to point out that we're told that the new covenant makes the first faultless covenant obsolete because the new covenant is better than the old. Uh, theologians have often pointed to uh, the, the time period when, when the, the car, the, the automobile, was invented. And if, if you know, of course, that before the car was invented, there were, horse and car- there, there were carriages that were pulled by horses. Well, that was great. If you, if you had a, a horse and a carriage, you know, before the car was invented, that was wonderful. But then all of a sudden, the car was invented, And that became so much better. Making, in essence, unless you're a Mennonite or an Amish person or somewhere where they don't have cars, uh, it made the the horse and buggy obsolete. The car replaced them. This is what we have in the new covenant. A better, a greater covenant. And it's in Christ that we have been given this covenant. But what is a covenant? I've said the word a lot. I've talked about it. I've referenced it. What is a covenant? In the Bible, a covenant is far more than a contract or a promise. It's a bond that forms a relationship Think of the covenant of marriage. When a man and a woman say, I do to one another, committing to love one another till death do them part, care for one another, remain faithful to one another. And if they are Christians, they commit to glorifying God together through that marriage. And and that's so much more than a contract. So sometimes people think covenant contract. I entered into a contract. No, no, no. A covenant in biblical terms is so much more than a contract. A covenant is a sworn promise certified by an oath, Biblical covenants were almost always made official or enacted into law by the shedding of an animal's blood. And that shedding of the animal's blood symbolized what would happen to the one who broke the covenant. And so if you think of Abraham and him walking through the the split animals and and all the sacrifices that were made there, if you think about the, the Mosaic covenant and the offerings and the sacrifices that were all part of that system, there's all this shedding of blood in covenants. And that was to say, you break this covenant... You see that animal over, over there? That's going to happen to you, whoever breaks this covenant. For this reason, theologian O. Palmer Robertson has defined a covenant as a bond in blood. Now, just imagine if we did this at weddings. You know, we, we, we use the shedding of blood to, to picture the, the importance of a covenant. Well, it just wouldn't drastically change the feel of weddings. No longer would they be this, this beautiful, intimate experience. They'd be like, whoa, uh, you, you better think twice about looking at somebody else. You, know, like, you better not do that, because if you do, that's, that's what's going to happen to you. It would definitely, maybe, maybe it wouldn't, but, but I think it might scare some people from committing adultery. But thankfully, we don't do that. We don't, we don't shed blood when, when the covenant of marriage is entered into anymore, and I'm thankful for that. But when it comes to the new covenant, what, what blood was shed? To, to enact the covenant. What, what blood was shed to, to make this covenant happen? Well, we know it was Christ's own blood that was shed. In the very next chapter in Hebrews 9, we're, we're, we're told that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews nine twelve. And so Christ's blood was shed. This new covenant took some blood to make it happen. But the blood wasn't the blood of an animal. It was the blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor and author Sam Waldron writes, the word covenant is one of the most important words in the Bible. The divine covenants are the framework of redemptive history and even provide the basic structure of the Bible itself. The term testament in the words Old and New Testament is simply an alternative translation of the word covenant. So it's Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. So God, who is infinite and holy, uses covenants to condescend, to come down to us human creatures, to, to make an oath, to assure us of his promises, to enter into relationship with us. And it's not just his word that he's given us to assure us that this is real, that we truly will be forgiven and we have been, been justified. What has he given us to, to make it clear? He's given us his son who shed his blood to make this covenant happen. And what does all this now have to do with baptism and the Lord's Supper? So much. And then we'll, we'll make more connections in future sermons, but, but one of the, the things that you need to see this morning is that covenants included signs, and this will help you see the connection between covenant, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. For example, the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis 9 included the sign of the rainbow. The covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17 included the sign of circumcision. The covenant that God made with Moses in Exodus 20 included the sign of the Sabbath. And the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7 included the sign of a son. Samuel was, God, God promised David a son, Solomon, but then he promised that, that he would have a son that sits on his throne forever. And that, that son would be greater than David. And that son is, of course, Christ. And so what is the sign of the new covenant? If covenants have signs, then what is the sign of the new covenant? Well, I think you've probably figured it out by now. It's baptism. This is why in Colossians 2, Paul makes parallels between circumcision, the sign of the old covenant, and baptism, the sign of the new covenant. "'In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ.' having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's a really interesting passage. So Paul starts with circumcision. He says, you were circumcised, but not with hands. Not, not the old covenant circumcision. You have been given another circumcision. And then he moves right into, not circumcision, but into baptism, which is the new covenant sign. No longer do you have to be circumcised. You need to be baptized if you're part of the new covenant. And what about the Lord's Supper? How does, how does the Lord's Supper fit within the framework of the new covenant? Without getting too far ahead of myself, if you remember, the, the last supper took place in the context of a Passover meal a -a once-a-year meal that reminded the Israelites, young and old, of God's covenant faithfulness, that he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them through the wilderness and given them the promised land. And so every year they were celebrating the the Passover. They were remembering basically the Old Testament gospel. They were in slavery, enslaved. They had no hope. They could not free themselves, but God had freed them out of slavery and brought them into freedom and brought them into the promised land. And so that meal served as a teaching meal. Every single time that the the Passover was celebrated, the, the Israelites would remember but also teach the next generation how God had worked mightily to fulfill his covenant promises. And it was in the context of the Old Covenant Passover meal that our Lord took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, "'Take, eat, this is my body.'" And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26. And in doing this, from out of the old, remember there's continuity and discontinuity, from out of the old, the Lord gave us something new. He gave us this new covenant meal. A new covenant meal that we're to celebrate together more than once a year, often and a meal that proclaims Christ's sin-atoning death until he returns. It's amazing, these connections, how, how Scripture fits together. It's not as though God said, you know what? My people kind of smell, and, and they should shower at, at least once in their lifetime, so I'm going to tell them to be baptized. And then all of a sudden, later on, he, he made these connections and, and, and fit, fit the Scriptures together to fit that. All along, God had a plan and a purpose, and, and baptism was part of that. And the symbolism and the, perp- the importance of baptism in the life of the church and in our discipleship is key. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. It's not like, oh yeah, by coincidence, Jesus is going to celebrate the first Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover meal. No, no, this was all purposeful. These connections, these themes, and they fit together in the context of covenant. Baptism and the Lord's Supper did not exist in their current form in the Old Covenant. They, they came into existence with the New Covenant. Abraham was not baptized in water like we are, and Moses did not celebrate the Lord's Supper. They are New Covenant ordinances that serve important New Covenant purposes. Can you imagine someone telling Noah, well, he gazed up at the rainbow with awe and wonder that that, that rainbow was no big deal? And just somebody walking by Noah? <laughs> Noah! Noah! <laughs> You keep on looking at the rainbow every time you see a rainbow. Big deal. Get over it. Bunch of colors. Big deal. Noah would have said, you fool. You know what that rainbow is? That's that's a sign to me and to all of creation that God will never, never again destroy us by flood, judge us by flood. Look at that rainbow again. That's a sign given to us from God. Can you imagine someone telling Moses that circumcision is no big deal, that it's optional? Within the covenant that he lived under, it wasn't. And he, he almost died because he thought he had time. He could, he could kind of wait on the whole circumcision deal. No way. Somebody would have said, Moses, don't worry about circumcision. Stop telling. No, He said, do you understand the God that you're talking about and what circumcision symbolizes? It means that we are part of the covenant. Don't tell me it's not important, circumcision. No way. Can you imagine someone telling the third century BC Israelite that the Passover meal was was really just another meal? No big deal. No way. They tell you that you just don't get it, that that you're missing the way that God has worked in history for his people. Well, just as the rainbow reminds us of God's promise to never destroy the earth by flood again, circumcision, uh, circumcision separated God's people in the old covenant, and the Passover was not just another meal for the Israelite, well, in the New Covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper serve equally important purposes. Equally important purposes. Church, this is why I believe a right understanding of the ordinances starts with an understanding of covenant and the New Covenant. And with this in place, as, as we look at other passages that directly address baptism and Lord's Supper in the coming weeks, we will see more of the, the richness the blessing of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I want us to reclaim more of the awe and the wonder. Yes, baptism and the Lord's Supper will not save us from our sins, but we're commanded to do these ordinances. And God wouldn't give us something to do just to, to go through the motions, to check off a box. There's richness, there's blessing, there's joy. There's truth here for us, church, and I'm really looking forward to digging into baptism and Lord's Supper, seeing how how they fit in the life of the church and in our own discipleship in the coming weeks. So let's pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Oh God in heaven, I pray that you would help us to, to see and to savor all that you have for us in Christ, that we would better understand as a church and as individual Christians the, the important role that baptism and the Lord's Supper play in our own discipleship and in the life of the local church. I pray that you would overcome our own personal experiences or feelings or preferences, our, our views on whether or not tra- traditions are good or bad, and you would overcome them all with your word as we, we sit under the authority of your word and we submit to it. Father, I know that, that there may likely be people that are wrestling back and forth with the Lord's Supper and baptism as we enter into these, these sermons and we consider their, their role in the life of the church. I pray that you would, you would show them your grace, that, that they would be patient with you as they work through things that maybe they haven't really addressed or thought through clearly for, for quite some time. And that as we address these matters, and we, we, do the, we do this not so that there would be greater division in the church, but greater unity among us, greater joy as we baptize people who profess faith in Christ in the coming weeks and months and years and decades until the Lord returns. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly together and we, we find all the riches in it. We are going to have greater joy in Christ together. And so I, I pray that you'd use this series for that end to increase our awe and wonder over the gospel and to unify us as a church so that we'd be closer and more and more amazed by your grace in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.